All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of 2 Samuel. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, some of you know it's not my favorite thing to do introductions to books and some of the isagogical and background material. In this case, I don't have to. Because 2 Samuel really is part of one whole document with 1 Samuel. There's speculation as to how it became two documents, whether it was written on two separate scrolls originally or whether it was the time of the Septuagint that it was separated into. But in fact, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is an artificial distinction. It's one document that runs all the way through. So without further ado, we can simply jump into 2 Samuel. Now, we can remember where we left off, of course, with chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, and that's finally the death of Saul. Very tragic. We had seen that coming. And so I don't want to overdo any sort of literary analysis at this point, simply because this isn't the end of the text. This is just one more climax. But I will point out two major occurrences in 1 Samuel. That's the death of Eli and his sons, and the second, the death of Saul and his sons. So you have this, again, this concept of the mighty being cast down and the lowly being raised up, raised up in place of Eli, the mighty priest who is cast down, is Samuel the prophet who is raised up, and Saul the mighty who is cast down, David, the lowly king, is raised up. So those are some of the major themes uh, going on. And of course, Samuel's mother is the one who sings this and virtually identical to the themes of the Magnificat sung, sung by Mary. So we see uh, our, our Lord himself as one who is lowly, even to the point of death, and death on a cross is then raised up and exalted, as Paul teaches in Philippians 2. So those are, you know, as we look for Christ in this text and see the face of uh, Christ shining through this text, those are some of the things we have in mind as well. And then zooming in on this relationship between the two kings that has been going on for such a long time in the latter half of Samuel, when you're talking about kings, you're talking about anointed ones. When you're talking about anointed ones, you're talking about messiahs. That's literally the language there. So you've got a, you've got a true messiah and a false messiah. You've got a Christ and an antichrist, if you will. And so we look at those themes too. Now with, with Saul's death, that brings uh, the the close of, of an era, uh, the, the era of the first king over Israel. And of course, this is a mistake in and of itself. Throughout this text, we're led to look for a king that is better than Saul. And that king, of, of course, originally is the Lord. And when the people want a king, the Lord you know, and Samuel, they're not pleased with this. But the Lord says, fine, you can have your earthly king. It's not going to go well for you. So the Lord is the king. Saul comes and he's such an inferior king, such a letdown, that there's this craving now for a, for a true king and a right king. In many ways, David fills the bill, and in many ways he doesn't. 
And so this too then points us for the ultimate king of God's people, David's son and David's Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, to fulfill this. So what we see in these texts, of course, is in the imperfections is a lot of longing for a fulfillment. And in Christ Jesus, what's so remarkable is both God gets his way and the people get their way. They get an earthly king. They get a human king. And it is still God getting his way. It is God reigning. And so both. This is, this is a window into the wonderful graciousness of God that even when man very wickedly demands something and thinks God is withholding something good from them and so reaches out to take it, even though that's wrong and bad comes from it, God somehow uses that to work good and then actually ends up giving people what they want. This is the, this is the strange humility and grace of God. So let me give you an example. In All the way at the beginning, the original sin with Adam and Eve is they, they reach out in order to become like God. Remember, that's the temptation that, the, that Satan puts in front of them. If you eat the fruit, you will be like God. They want to be like God, so they take this thing which God has forbidden. Now, that, of course, is evil, and the evil consequences of that show forth. But God still uses this evil for good, and in the end, does he not give to Adam and Eve, and in fact, to all of us, the very thing we wanted, that is to be like God. And so he sends Jesus and elevates us and makes us as close to God as creatures can possibly be. The same kind of thing goes on here where, where the people demand a king. And this is completely contrary to God. But as I just said with Christ Jesus, in the end, he gives us the very thing of our heart's desire, a king uh, unlike any other king. So God is constantly so humble, so good, that he gives us what we want. Even if we steal it or take it the wrong way or do it in a, an offensive way, he, he works through this by way of law and gospel and then ultimately gives us what we, what we wanted in a way that is truly good. So, one more theme to reflect on there before we turn the page into 2 Samuel. Now, David has not yet heard of Saul's death because, of course, David was, ironically, very dramatically, going to be on the side of the Philistines against Saul and the army of Israel. But the Philistine kings, the, the, the rulers of the five cities, uh, they reject him and they send David back. If you remember, David goes back to Ziklag and his two wives and his children, as long as the wives and children, as well as the wives and children of his men, they've all been taken captive by the Amalekites. So David inquires of the Lord, goes back, by God's grace, recaptures the the wives and children of, of all the people, brings them safely back to Ziklag. But in the meantime, he doesn't know what's happened to Saul. And Saul, of course, has lost the battle. Israel has lost the battle. Uh, and Saul has died. So that's where we pick up then in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, 
The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now, this is interesting. I don't know exactly what to make of this, if anything, but David, of course, has just been off slaying the Amalekites, and now this man is an Amalekite. So that's a strange coincidence. I did go digging a little bit in a commentary for any connection. None was offered. So who knows? If you find out the connection there, let me know. Verse 9, And he, that is Saul, said to me, the Amalekite, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Does anyone detect anything wrong with this based on what we read back in 1 Samuel? Flip back with me to 1 Samuel 31. And let's, let's see what's depicted here. In 1 Samuel 31, we, of course, have the narrative voice, which is a reliable voice. So just picking up at verse 1, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Now, what, is the, what does the Amalekites say is bearing down on Saul? Chariots and horsemen. What's the narrator say? It's the archers. The discrepancy. And so what you're going to see is this Amalekite isn't telling the truth. He isn't telling the truth. Okay, let's continue on. So verse uh, chapter 31, verse 4, Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Why? What did he fear greatly? He had the, the armor bearer had the same fear that King David had, namely that he's not going to strike the Lord's anointed. Doesn't matter how rotten of a guy he was, doesn't matter how apostate Saul had become, he was still anointed of the Lord and in the office of king. So the armor bearer refuses to strike Saul. Therefore, end of verse 4, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Okay, 
thus Saul died, etc., etc. Now, into Ziklag rides this Amalekite. Well, that's an exaggeration. Yeah, but what's that? Yeah, he said, well, he says he killed him, right. Now, why, why do you think he would say to David, who's in line to be the new king, hey, remember your enemy? I whacked him for you. Yeah, he's, he's looking for a reward. And that becomes, so he concocts this story. No doubt he comes across Saul because he is able to uh, get the crown. In those days, kings went into battle in full regalia, crown and armlet. So he's able to grab the crown and the armlet from Saul. But his story doesn't match. Now, of course, as David is first hearing this, he's hearing this for the first time, it may well not have resonated with David at that time that he was being lied to. But by the time this narrative is recorded, most certainly... David was aware that this is a false report, and, and so is the author here. So it gets recorded in just this way that, again, if there's a connection, it's that the Amalekites were so rotten that they came against the, camp, the unprotected camp of women and children and hauled them off. And then the Amalekites are so rotten that they concocted this story about killing uh, Saul just to gain favor with David. So that's probably the impact, but again, I don't know for certain. So the story doesn't make any sense. Uh, in the first place, we know that there were uh, archers after Saul. Here, the Amalekites as chariots and horsemen. Then there are other problems. Um, there's no record of Saul con calling back to this Amalekite and the Amalekite saying, here I am. This exchange, who are you? I'm an Amalekite. And then Saul supposedly saying, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. Again, there's no uh, record of that. And he says, I killed him. Um, so look, I get the credit, but I was sure that he could not live after um, he had suffered these wounds. So I get the credit on the one hand. On the other hand, if this offends you, he was as good as dead anyway. By the way, I brought the crown and the armlet, so here you are, my lord. What the Amalekite wants is a reward and the favor of David, and probably most earthly kings would simply say, wonderful, sit here in my throne room and have some high position and wealth and status. Not David. Not David. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Again, David sees himself as, as king of Israel, anointed by the Lord through Samuel. And so this loss of Israel is a loss for David and a loss for his men. And so they weep and mourn because this is a major military loss and defeat. Lots of, of life uh, has, been, has been lost here. And then uh, not to mention Saul and Jonathan. Of course, we'll see once more David's uh, very close personal friendship, theological camaraderie. Uh, with Jonathan and the deep pain that causes him. But he, he also will mourn for Saul. Even though Saul attempted to kill David so many times, he is, David again sees him as the one whom the Lord has put in the office of king, of anointed one. And so David respects and honors and loves him no matter how much, uh, how poorly Saul has treated David. 
all of this gives us, you know, very, I won't slow down other than just to point, down and point out and say that all of this gives us glimpses into the way that King David thinks and, it is, and why the scriptures, you know, say that David is a man after the Lord's heart. We want to we take in this data and we want to ponder it in our hearts because then we'll learn more fully what it means that David is a man after the Lord's heart. So we want to take in these data points and have them in our hearts and our minds as well. Okay, verse 13. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. Now, the Amalekites, as the study note points out to you, these are resident aliens who owed obedience to King Saul. So, even though in the story the man has already said he's an Amalekite, David wants to make sure of that fact, make sure that that this man as an individual owed loyalty to Saul, and in other words, should have known better to strike him. Verse 14, David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? It's an incredible question because David himself, remember, he trembled and his heart even troubled him, the text says, after he merely cut a corner of Saul's robe off. David was almost beside himself. And here this man had just apparently, allegedly, casually uh, slain Saul. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. Now again, (laughs) yeah, so much for a reward. (laughs) He's there, he thinks he's going to get a reward for David, and instead he gets executed. So So at this point in time in the narrative, of course, David simply takes it at face value. Talking about the history of it. David doesn't know what's going on. This guy says, I came and killed King Saul. David says, that's very great. You're dead. What's that? Yeah, right. Well, he admitted to it. Yeah, he admitted to it. And so David says, great. Uh, You're guilty of murder. I mean, that's sort of the superficial charge. The, The greater charge is you killed the Lord's anointed. Yeah, death sentence. Death sentence. It doesn't matter that he was, I mean, later on. How tragic for this Amalekite in his deceit, you know. He probably never even killed him, you know. And here he's yeah, yeah, exactly, right. Oh, so, tra- well, I mean, I guess you get what you get, but. All right, so, so yeah, David has no problem here uh, executing this man who uh, he believed had struck down Saul. So one of the young men came and then struck down the Amalekite and he died. And David said to him, this is verse 16, And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Which is a really, really poignant phrase when you just first take it at face value because it is, uh, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's Messiah the Lord's Christ. So think about those words in terms of the Jewish people, particularly the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. 
And you remember what they say of Jesus, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And how poignant these words in their own scriptures read to them, to their generation, you know. From your own lips you have testified, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah. This, too, is, of course, how, uh, how Peter begins his Pentecost sermon. And so at the, the birthday of the church, if you will, the very first Christian sermon proper, the very first sermon of, of, uh, of the church is precisely this, you know. You are, you are guilty of this. All right, then on to verse 17. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, it should be taught the people of Judah. Now, we're going to get into the background of this in just a minute, so I won't spend a lot of time. But do note at this point, it's just Judah. It's not all of Israel. He said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. There are a couple of ESV notes, if you've got an ESV uh, ESV study Bible. Those are the little tiny notes above the footnotes in the text column itself. And you can see where in verse 18, and he said it, there's a little one, superscript one, and that's a reference to the Septuagint. In Hebrew, this is the bow, which may well be the title of, of this lamentation as they knew it. They might have known it as the bow, uh, kind of like a hymn, like the title of a hymn or something like that, right? Uh, so I simply point that out in passing. And then the next thing you see is this book of Jashar in verse 18. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. This is um, also the ESV study note points out that this is, or of the upright. So the book of the upright or the book of the righteous, the book of Jashar. Um, there's mention of this in Joshua, but this is an extra canonical text that's been lost. So we don't know what this book of Jashar is. Yeah. So I wonder about the Malachite. He doesn't recognize that Saul is an anointed one. Right? He just thinks he's a king. No, he knows. That's, that's why David wants to fetch out if he's an Amalekite. Then he knows that Saul is the anointed one of Israel. Um, at this point, as the study note says, the Amalekites are resident aliens. That is, they're within the, the land, the promised land that belongs to God's people. They're being allowed to live there by God's people. They owe loyalty to the king. They should recognize Saul as king, and, and indeed he does. That's why he takes the crown, and, the, and so they should recognize him as the anointed. And so to strike him down is not their business, not, not anything they should be doing. Okay, so without further ado, here is the lamentation of David for Saul and Jonathan. He said, verse 19, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. Again, they were in the, the mountains of um, Gilboa, so that's the reference. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. I don't know if, I don't know if that's the, ori the original of that, the origin of that phrase. I don't know. Yeah, I just don't know if that's the first place we find it. Well, how the mighty have fallen. 
Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Again, these are two of the major cities of uh, the Philistines. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. So what you see here, too, is that the, the Philistines, these are, these are uncircumcised people. These are people who follow after false gods. Let them not rejoice that the true God's king has been slain, and along with his son. Jonathan, of course, was a great military champion and a very faithful fighter on behalf of God's people, as 1 Samuel did show. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. In other words, let you be, you know, let, let you be desolate. No fields from which offerings might be taken. That's the sense. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul. Uh, defiled in loss, in death, dirt, blood. That's the, that's the picture. The shield of Saul, uh, not anointed with oil. This is a grammatical ambiguity. You can have the shield not anointed with oil, in which the sense is probably something. So these are leather shields that you would anoint with oil. Thus, the sense would probably be something like, it will never be anointed with oil again. It will never rise up again to you know, defend. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the larger context. The grammatical ambiguity can also refer to Saul not anointed with oil. And that's probably more the case. That the anointed has fallen, he's no longer the anointed. So I know that that doesn't really help you with the ESV reading because the ESV renders it as a reference to the, sh- to the shield. Uh, but again, in the, just in the straight original language, you can make a case. And in fact, that's the Concordia commentary, Steinman. He takes this to be a reference to Saul, no longer anointed with oil. Let me, let me just check the study note, the ESV. Anointed with oil to keep Saul's wicker and leather shield from growing brittle. Yeah, so they don't wrestle with that. They just try to give the best possible explanation of the ESV reading. Okay, not to lose the forest for the trees. It's... David is wishing curses upon the battlefield, the place where this, uh, where this loss and tragedy happened. And he's lamenting that the shield of the mighty, the shield of Saul, was defiled. He continues, verse 22, From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the enemy, the bow of Jonathan turned not back. So that's a, that's a way of saying, uh, I don't know how to put it, it's very poetic, but just to put it bluntly, um, Jonathan, it's, it's speaking about Jonathan's prowess in battle. Okay, his, his bow uh, went after the fat of the mighty, went after the blood of the slain, just was relentless in battle. Maybe that's a way of putting it. The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. So Jonathan, known for his archery, in fact, you remember uh, that that was the signal given to David when he was waiting out in the field. Remember this whole thing? And and, uh, depending on where he shoots, that's going to be a signal. So Jonathan, known to be an archer, thus the reference to the bow. And maybe even the title of the song, The Bow, uh, that we mentioned earlier before. And then the sword of Saul returned not empty. 
There's certainly some tragic irony in that phrase, though I doubt that David means that. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan be loved and lovely. And again, this is, I, I mean, this is just such character on the part of David because, to include Saul, right? Because Saul was absolutely wretched to David and made David's life miserable, miserable. I won't recount all the dirty, nasty things he did to David, but you can even think about holding out his daughter and then pulling his daughter back and marrying him off to another, allowing him to marry his daughter, Michal, and then, uh, Michal, and then um, when David's off and about, marrying off his wife to some other man. I mean, then trying to kill him multiple times, chasing him all over the mountains, trying to trick and trap him in every possible way. Uh, just absolute wickedness. And here David can sing his praises. It's really incredible character. Loving your enemies, explaining everything in the kindest way, um, loving, loving a man who is in, in and of himself completely unworthy, but on account of his office, respecting and loving him. All, all wonderful examples here on the part of David. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. Again, this is explaining everything in the kindest way because indeed at times they, they were. Um, when, when Jonathan learns that Saul in no uncertain terms is going to, is going to try to kill David, uh, Jonathan is very upset by this, very angered at his father. In life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. So, in other words, his kingship provided for you. Verse 25, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So again, we saw that unique friendship and camaraderie that um, as we Lutherans would say, was not just a left-hand kingdom civil camaraderie, but a right-hand kingdom. They were on the side of Yahweh. They were spiritual brothers and spiritual warriors together as well. And so um, that, the, the closeness of that relationship transcended that to even, even David and uh, his two wives. Okay, that's the end then of this, uh, of this dirge, of this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, and also the end of chapter 1. Any uh, thoughts or questions, anything you saw to add? Okay. Well, I wish I could say it gets happier from here, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Even from the very beginning, David's kingdom is plagued just plagued, his reign is plagued with violence and tragedy and uh, familial troubles. It's exacerbated as we'll go along and as we'll see because of David's own sins, but even from the get-go, that's nothing really to be envied. 
chapter 2, verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, which is entirely refreshing after seeing so many chapters where Saul simply does whatever he wants to do. David inquires of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? There too, note again, Judah. And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Uh, we met both of them back in First Samuel. Verse 3, And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. Uh, approximately 600 last we were given a rough number. That's how many were with him in, in Ziklag. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Okay, so David, of course, has been anointed already by Samuel way back when, when he was selected out of his brothers. And now he is formally uh, anointed by his um, by the people over whom he's going to rule, but it is just the house of Judah. Now that'll all become clear in just a minute. So continuing on with a new paragraph, but still verse 4. When they told David, it was the men of Jabash Gilead who buried Saul. This came at the very tail end of 1 Samuel. Remember, they, of course, they desecrated the, the Philistines desecrated the body of Saul you know, did all their horrible pagan stuff. And the men of uh, Jabash Gilead had went and gotten his body and given him proper burial. So just tying up that loose end here. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What we see, too, here is a, is a theme that... So, so David, in doing the right thing, ends up also doing the, the politically expedient thing. Although he's probably not doing it for those intentions. So in doing the right thing um, by putting to death this Amalekite uh, for um, killing Saul, not only is he doing the right thing and the just thing, but he's also sending this message. No one tolerates an, assa an assault on the Lord's anointed which in this case also happens to be him. Yeah, <laughs> so in doing the right thing, it's also the politically expedient thing. And that's true here with Jabash Gilead. So in rewarding them, he also does the politically, he does the right thing to do um, for burying Saul and for their loyalty. He also, it also ends up being politi politically expedient because he's teaching all the people that the king is to be honored and his life respected and even in death respected. So this is a, this is a theme the study note points out, the study notes of the ESV point out from time to time that it just so happens that the right thing is the politi politically expedient thing. Excuse me, I'm having a hard time talking all of a sudden. All right. 
Now, as we have seen, the modifier has been of Judah, of Judah, of Judah, of Judah, and now we're going to find out why. Chapter 2, verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and, well, all Israel. <laughs> Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. So while we read at the end of 1 Samuel that three of Saul's sons die with him, apparently this one son, Ishbosheth, remained behind, probably strategically for this very purpose. Abner is uh, introduced to us back in 1 Samuel, and he is introduced there as Saul's cousin. Okay, so this is thus... Uh, Abner's loyalty to Saul and to that line. So he takes Saul's remaining sh son, Ishbosheth, and Abner, of course, is the commander of Saul's army, as we're told here. So, um, as so often is the case in politics, the army decides who leads, and uh, in this case, it's going to be Ishbosheth. Verse 10 Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old. Oh, I'm sorry, I read that. Um, he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. So short reign, some foreshadowing there. But the house of Judah followed David. And at, that and at the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay. Um, in other words, what's the, what's the kind of shocking thing at this point? Israel's already divided. And exactly the way it's going to be divided permanently after Solomon. Israel's already divided between Judah and Israel. There's already temporarily two kingdoms, at least here, and two kings, one whom the Lord has anointed and one whom the Lord is not. Okay, well, now we get into just, I mean, tragedy. I think I liked this much more when I was like 12 years old and was reading this than, uh, than I like it now because <laughs> it's a bunch of violence and bloodshed. Now it's a little too real. Then it was uh, kind of Hollywood to me. All right, verse 12. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, now this is the first time we're introduced to Joab, and he's an important figure. As the study note points out, he is David's nephew and commander of his army. Okay. So there's immediately we have this setup for this rivalry between Abner and Joab. They're the two commanders of the two armies. They're both related to the, to the kings. And neither of these men are men to be trifled with. That's the thing you, you also find in these texts. Verse 13, And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. Is it here that the study note is? Yes. In verse 13, the study note also points out, archaeologists have found... Uh, this pool, it, to be about 36 feet in diameter and nearly as deep, carved from solid rock. Water would have pooled at the bottom of this deep, broad shaft. 
Uh, it was reached by a series of steps. So this is a place to have a skirmish, um, very dramatic landscape. And they are, uh, they are gathered there. So Ishbosheth himself isn't there. But Abner and his army and Joab and his army. And they meet at the pool of Gibeon and then just in the middle of verse 13. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve from Benjamin and Ishbosheth the son of Saul and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was also called Helkath Hazarim. And the ESV says that that means the, the field of sword edges, which is at Gibeon. Okay, so if we pause there, uh, this, is the, this is an absolutely terrible thing. This, this is one of the low points in the history of Israel because, and you can see this symbolized, there's a battle over who's the real Israel, thus the number 12 and 12. And the answer is that when these 12 and 12 clash, they completely kill each other. So the answer is, none of you, in effect. None of you. This isn't Israel. None of this is Israel. This is brothers shedding each other's blood. Uh, not only in brothers in terms of countrymen, in terms of what we would call the left-hand kingdom, but brothers in terms of the right-hand kingdom. These are sons of God. You are all children of Yahweh, and you've murdered each other. So even though this is rather understated in the case, I think we have to zoom in on this, and it's so graphically depicted, uh, precisely to horrify us and draw attention to just how unnatural and horrific this civil war is. Now, after this has transpired and these, these youths have slain each other, we read in verse 17, and the battle was very fierce that day. So what erupts afterward is then full-scale conflict, civil war in Israel. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So David's side conquers no surprise there, given that David is the Lord's anointed. But tragedy unfolds further. Verse 18. And three sons of uh, Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, uh, you have... In, in the study note on verse 18, these are three sons of David's sister... Zeruiah, uh, Zeruiah, they wanted to eliminate Abner, making it possible for David to become king of all Israel. So, in other words, all three of these men are uh, nephews of David. Do I have that right? I'm always terrible at the family arrangement thing. Yeah, okay, good. Abishai, Asahel, and uh, Joab, who, of course, Joab, we know he's the, the commander. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot 
as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. All right, so Abner's running with a group of guys. He knows he's being followed by Azahel. He knows Azahel wants to get him. And he says, in effect, why don't you take on somebody your own size? This isn't going to go well for you. And uh, we'll see what happens next. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. Verse 22, And Abner said again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? So we get the sense throughout this text that Azahel might be quite young. He's certainly inexperienced. Verse 23, faithfully, but he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. All right, so this is terrible. This is just terrible and just very grisly, very gruesome, and very sad. Because here, actually, I think think one gains a heart for Abner. Abner didn't want to kill him. Abner didn't want to escalate things. He had lost. He wanted to just take his loss and go home and regroup and figure it out later. Uh, And he certainly didn't want to make things any more personal between him and Joab. So Abner, who's kind of this cold-hearted figure, this commander who has in many ways been a servant of Saul against David, now really shows a heart and is kind of miserable. So he basically begs Azahel, don't make me kill you. And what's he supposed to do? So he kills him. And of course, that's not good. And that's going to have real bad consequences, real bad consequences. Okay, well, that's enough to sort of end the battle because the men who are pursuing just stop dead on their tracks. I mean, they understand the magnitude of what's what's occurred and the tragedy of what's occurred. You know, and of course, the close proximity to to David. You know, this is David's uh, nephew. Okay, uh, 24, but Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. Now, these, of course, are the brothers of Azahel. And so this is quite personal now. So while the whole army like calls it done and that's it, these two go on and pursue Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? In other words, like, 
I think Abner again is rightfully saying, like, if you pursue any further, it's suicidal. You know, it's just going to be more bloodshed and you're going to get the bad end of this one. Well, verse 27, and Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. In other words, you know, by this, by this attempted parlay on the part of Abner to just say, hey, stop pursuing. There's going to be more bloodshed. You're going to get the worst end. Like, we don't, I don't want this to continue. Enough is enough. And so uh, Joab makes the point. He says, look, if you hadn't spoken, we would have kept following you. You've, kept, you've spoken. That gives us opportunity. So he blows his trumpet, and then that's, that's the end of it uh, for that for that time. So very tragic, very dramatic, and now um, also just sort of burned into the hearts of Joab and, uh, and Abishai is the loss of their brother to Abner. And so it was already a bitter rivalry has now become even more bitter. We as the readers are, le- are, are left sympathizing with both of them, pity- pitying both sides now, really. And also maybe, maybe increasingly pitying Abner simply because at various times, both with Azahel and uh, here, um, he, he sues for peace. So one, one gains a heart in this text then for Abner. All right, well, verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. So pretty one-sided. I don't know know about that number, if that includes the 12 or not. I just don't know. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. And there, of course, Bethlehem in the background. Um, as far as I know, this is the same Bethlehem, the city, you know, what is the city of David? And so we're just reminded subtly that Bethlehem's the city of David, and ultimately we're going to have a Christmas morning here. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us where all this is going, and it's, again, us very sad. Uh, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel. So Ahinoam gives him his first son, Amnon. And his second, uh, Chiliab or Kiliab, of Abigail, the widow of Nabal, of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, of whom we'll be hearing a lot more, of course. Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Now, this is the first time we've heard of Makkah in, in the Samuel text. If you drop down to your study note, you'll see uh, 
the study note chapter 3 verses 2 through 5 and about two-thirds the way down by marrying Makkah, David formed an alliance with the people east of the Jordan and north of Ishbosheth's capital. So, again, we're reminded that this is a time of uh, where marriages are as much political as anything else. So he has the wife uh, Makkah now added. Um, he's technically got four wives, uh, although uh, Michal has been given away to another. So with him, he's got these three, Ahinoam, Abigail, and Makkah. All right, from whom he receives Absalom. And then verse 4, and the fourth, Adonijah, Adonijah, I don't know, I'll probably pronounce that one about seven different ways. Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, uh, Shaphatiah, the son of Abital. Now, this is Abital, so this is the first we've heard of her. And I don't think she pops up anywhere in the study note. If you find a note on, on uh, Abital, let me know. But I didn't, I didn't see her. The sixth, uh, Ithrium of Egla, David's wife. So the sixth son is Ithrium of Egla, David's wife, and I, don't see, I didn't see any reference to Egla either. So David's getting a lot of wives and a lot of kids. And that also means these are political alliances by and large, so he's gaining strength, as the first verse said. The house of Saul is shrinking, losing strength. Okay, verse 6. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, uh, the daughter of Aah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Uh, this is not, I mean, even if lust was a motivator, that's not the point. That's not the point. In, in going, I mean, this is all rather disgusting to us, and I suppose it should be, but in going into the king's concubine, you're asserting your kingship. This is all like National Geographic type stuff to us, but um, but yeah, that's what that means. So when Ishbosheth confronts him, it's not like, "Hey, how'd you let your lust get out of control?" It's more like, "What are you doing? Do you think you're the king?" So that's what's really going on here. All right. So Ishbosheth confronts Abner. Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said. Am I, a, am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. Yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth said, Oh crap. <laughs> he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So, what's actually going on here is Abner has switched sides. He said, That's it, you ungrateful person, <laughs> you know. Um, and you accuse me of this, fine, I, 
I'm going to fight for David. What's this a dog's head to Judah? A, a, dogs are unclean and disgusting and filthy. So he's saying, look, am I not filthy to our enemies? I mean, have I not served you in just this way? And uh, to this day, I've done nothing but love you and your father, and you treat me this way. You, you, know, you accuse me of this thing. So I'm out. I'm going to help David. All right, uh, verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. This would be a huge loyalty test. Huge loyalty test to see if this is, if this is true or false or because this would be subverting Saul and what Saul had done. Of course, David, again, this is, um, David is probably technically doing the right thing here, and it's also the politically expedient thing. As the study note points out, David asserts his connection to Saul's family and rule. Uh, David considered himself still legally married to Michal because he had never divorced her. What Saul had done in giving her over to another is illegitimate in David's eyes. So he's doing the right thing, saying, bring me my wife back. But it's also very politically expedient. Uh, Not only in terms of uh, discerning and assuring Abner's loyalty, but then also, and again, I think that this is a very important move politically because he says, look, my problem isn't with the house of Saul as such. My problem is with the rebellion, right? So I'm taking the house of Saul as my wife once more. Look, we are countrymen. We're brothers. So this is a very, very smart move. Of course, it's the right thing to do anyway. Um, Okay, verse 14. Then David sent messengers to Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. I don't know if we're supposed to sympathize with him or not, but her husband went uh, with her, oh yeah, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, and he returned. So I guess we are supposed to sympathize with him to some to some extent. We don't know the backstory that they probably knew original to this event. But again, we just see the mess. We see the mess. Okay, um, we are at time. So let's simply mark the text there at chapter 3, verse 17. And we'll pick up back in the middle of this this civil war and drama between the two houses. The Lord be with you.